This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell with you. And look, science friction is often out of the ordinary, I'm prepared to admit. But today, something a little unusual for us. We have a politician on the show. Normal Tuesday, start with basketball, go to caucus, do do an interview with you and then into parliament. The Federal Minister of Industry and Science, Ed Husick, is my guest on the program today. Now, science and technology, let's face it, they shape every aspect of our lives, whether we know it, whether we like it or not. Just look at how the COVID pandemic rewrote the script of our lives. This sneaky virus comes along. There's some science right there. Vaccines, more science. But here's the thing. Scientists in Australia tell us that they are struggling to keep research afloat. And early career researchers are bailing. And for a while there, you might recall under the Abbott Coalition government, Australia had no science minister at all. So 10 months on into this Labor government, after 10 years in opposition, where's science on their agenda? As a Minister for Industry and Science, you didn't train in the sciences, and you're certainly not alone there. It's rare to see politicians with a science background. I guess Karen Andrews was one of the, the rare few in this portfolio with her engineering background. But what particular interest do you have in the science portfolio? Pre-Parliament, I uh, was a union official in a sector where I saw technology create both, uh, in the minds of some of the members, sunrise and sunset drawn from the communications perspective. I was in the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union and I saw how, for example, the internet opened up for people working in the telecommunications side. They, they might have the prospect of a lot more work, whereas in the postal side, and this was back at a time where no one could really see that letters would shrink as fast as they would, from their point of view, they wondered about what impact technology would have and innovation and science and the, the, the way in which they would intersect and, and change the way they live their lives. And from my point of view, I think thinking about this, engaging in this space is important, not just from a workforce perspective, but what it does to our communities and our countries. Uh, I see both the light and the shade when it comes to these things and being in a position as a minister to have an influence uh, potentially on these matters means a, a big deal. But mm. the biggest thing for me is, and the thing that I get uh, most focused on, is I, I do think we need to do a better job in this country in valuing our ideas. It's been something, a thread that has run through our history that we haven't wanted to really talk up our know-how. And I do think that We've had to do something from our First Nations people to everyone else who's turned up thereafter on a continent like ours to survive. We've been able to use our brains to make a difference and I I want that to continue and at a greater scale. Yeah, using our brains. Uh, When it comes to R&D investment, Australia invests just under (laughs) 1.8% of GDP. Now that puts us well down the list Mm -hmm. of OECD countries. Israel sits at 5.4% of GDP, Korea 4.8%, Germany 3.1% and what excuse does Australia have? We're a country that rode off the back of a very profitable mining boom for decades to not be a high investor like Israel or at least meet the OECD average. Why aren't we more courageous in investing in the nation's minds and this, and particularly the science minds? Well, I'm loath to just pull one lever for the answer. I think there are a number of things that are at play. I do think We rely a lot on our university sector to drive research. I say that with the greatest respect and regard 
for them. I think that that is important to happen, but more does need to happen within industry. You ask the question why it might occur, and some of the answers may be a belief that others do it better, which is why I keep coming back to, no, we need to value our know-how more and back it. Uh, And I think there's a view that you can just buy off the shelf. I think there's probably an attitudinal shift that needs to occur in that respect. Some of it is, for example, saying it just costs too much and why would we invest? And, and that's I, definitely I a reality, bit... isn't it? If we look at the globalised world we exist in, cheap labour is not not available in Australia in the way that it is in, say, China. But for some of the things that, particularly in terms of research, it's not stuff that you can get at bargain basement prices. You Mm. need smart people and you need to be able to have remuneration that reflects that. And for some of the businesses that say it's too hard or cost too much to invest yet engage in things like share buybacks, I'm scratching my head quite often going, well, hang on, you just (laughs) purchased a whole lot of shares back into your firm that you could have dedicated for a much more sustainable, longer term uh, benefit. Uh, and that is to find new ways to do what you do. Uh, I think I just think there's, you know, in my role, I'm quite prepared to jab and push issues, uh, uncomfortable issues for people to think about if we can get something done differently. I'm very, very much there for that discussion. The advice of scientific leaders used to be listened to by governments. There's been a major shift in recent decades. Globally, scientists have found their advice ignored, denied, playing second fiddle to the interests of powerful industry lobbyists and others. How will your government approach scientific evidence and advice, even, and this is key, when it might be at odds with your policies? One of the first things I did as a new minister is attend Science Meets Parliament, run by Science and Technology Australia, back in June. And one of the first things I did, Natasha, was I ditched the script, I ditched the speech, and I just said one of the things I wanted to say to the entire science and research community in Australia is thanks and to recognise their contributions and to signal, uh, one, that we value them and that we did want to bring them back uh, into uh, the whole mix of policy making, the considerations that are taken into account when we are deciding policy, and we want that to occur. The PM has taken a very active role, for example, in in his own National Science and Technology Council, and we're looking at revitalising Uh, that. We're looking at revamping our national science priorities and embedding them in a new science statement. And longer term, I think, coming to one of your earlier questions around research investment, looking at what we do on that. And so there will be avenues for the science and research community in this country to have input. And some of it will, yeah, we'll agree on some things and we'll disagree on others. And there'll be some things that are difficult to hear or we might not have agreement on. But frankly, in a modern democracy, we should be strong enough, durable enough to manage that. It's about developing evidence-based policy. And here's an example. There have been claims over the years that scientists at Australia's national flagship scientific research agency, CSIRO, have been muzzled or certainly felt unable to speak publicly, especially on those issues that are are deemed to be politically sensitive, like climate Mm. change, Mm. uh, like COVID-19. And, you know, we used to see... CSIRO scientists in the media all the time on issues of national importance. Hmm. So are you going to encourage, for example, CSIRO scientists to speak up out and proudly about the work that they're doing, even when it doesn't serve your government's interests? Obviously, the way in which things are done in Canberra has shifted profoundly with a new government. And so 
there is alignment there with the concerns expressed by the scientific community around climate change and the way that the government is taking this a lot more seriously. I understand your question goes to a much more fundamental point more generally where scientists might take a different view to the government and that may occur and I don't want people to feel like that they are muzzled. Yeah, personally, and I, I do know across government, we're a lot more comfortable about people being able to express their views. I don't think we'll crumple into a, a ball. We, we're not that uh, sensitive or fragile that we can't handle alternative views. I'm more than happy for those to be expressed. In fact, I think it's a sign of a healthy democracy. And I also think it's a, a better from an outcomes perspective that all views are taken into account as we're trying to shape a policy that we all want, what we ultimately want is things to be better for the nation and we want the the nation to be much more stronger, healthier and much more fulfilled longer term and I think that it, that will rely on a lot of people, not just a few. Let's consider CSIRO briefly. The Chief Executive Larry Marshall is about to finish his eight years at the helm and under him the focus of CSIRO has shifted dramatically and for many controversially from public good science to really focusing on securing commercialisation opportunities and consulting contracts and customers. Should the Australian public be funding CSIRO to be a very extravagant consulting company, as one eminent ex-CSIRO scientist put it, climatologist David Caroli? I have issued a new statement of expectations to the CSIRO in December last year, so they do uh, have that. And in it, I did make clear that the community needs to be able to trust in the independence and integrity of the CSIRO's work. So I've certainly done that. And coming to elements of your question, that I don't want people to feel that our science agencies are renting out their brand for the commercial interests of companies that are commercially able to fund their own research. So I am conscious of that. I respect the independence of the CSIRO, but I'm also elected and, and appointed as a minister to reflect community expectations in many respects uh, as well. But you are and focused on industry and R&D in industry. So the example mm. that is often cited at the end of 2018, CSIRO announced a $20 million partnership with Fortescue Metals to focus on hydrogen industry technologies. Fortescue Metals made an enormous profit, $9 billion profit last year. Do they need mm. uh, the, the efforts of publicly subsidised scientists to do their R&D for them? Okay, so I'm going to be very careful about making blanket, like, this will not, you know, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Mm. I, I want to ensure that we get, as many people would expect, we get good outcomes, uh, that we get ones that work for the broader community, not just for some. And if, if we are trying to encourage industry to do a lot more of this thinking, where they can team up and where it's not an expectation that they're renting out the brand of the CSIRO to effectively cover what they're doing... I'll be very conscious and alert to that. But if it is a genuine, genuine pursuit of knowledge, of application of new ideas and being able to do it in a way that's not just for the benefit of one company, but for industry, I think it is a big challenge for us to get commercialisation ramped up in this country. It's one of the big challenges we've got. When you look at the Global Innovation Index and our rankings on there, you know, we don't perform so well. We don't 
we perform very well in the human capital side, the quality of our people, but the outputs, we're lagging. And so it is something, Natasha, that is very vexed and difficult to sort out. So I am trying to get the balance right. This is why I said I don't want to be so dogmatic on thou shall and, sh- and shall not. Uh, if there are things that we can find and pursue that have wider application, I'm very interested in that. But I don't want it to be uh, something that I believe undervalues or is not a proper use of the CSIRO's expertise in the national interest. CSIRO has had a a strong tradition of blue sky research, and I wonder how you then see blue sky research, research that isn't necessarily tied to national priorities, but Mm -hmm. through the amazing power of scientific serendipity, all sorts of incredible applications can emerge Mm. if you support blue sky science. And nearly all the funding announced in the last federal budget under your government focuses on commercialisation or applied science. Do you see a role for blue sky science? Well, I absolutely do. I think the last budget was largely uh, around, uh, obviously, we've inherited uh, some financial uh, or fiscal challenges coming into office and we're dealing with those. Well, delivered to you by a pandemic. Uh, I think there's elements of that and there's probably some choices we would have made differently uh, were we in government, but uh, a lot of that first budget, I wouldn't want to stretch out what you've seen in that budget as an expectation about how we'll go longer term. And coming to your question, Natasha, about Blue Sky, absolutely. I mean, I want to see, I I respect and value the role of basic research through to some of what you were talking about in terms of Blue Sky uh, thinking that that does need to occur because you don't know where that ultimately ends up and you don't know necessarily how the spillovers might occur. Getting the balance right between that and commercialisation is important and I don't want people to feel that there's only one that you can only make one choice. On ABC Radio National, here on Science Friction, it's Natasha Mitchell, joined this week by the Federal Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick. Building talented minds starts from day dot, really. It starts from preschool, primary school. Mm. We're in a situation in Australia where we have a, a serious technology skills shortage. We The past mm. year, these stats blow my mind, saw the lowest ever enrolments in year 12 maths. For the mm. first time, enrolments in higher level maths are less than 10%. Some states even allow students to skip maths altogether after year 10. Mm. How does that fit with building a smart nation? Well, it's obviously very difficult and it's not a neat fit, frankly. I don't want to give you the sort of politico speak in response to that. It is a big thing that I I think about a lot, about how we actually see people go into these fields at an early level and getting that mix right is important. We are looking at how we can encourage younger people in and, and also bring in and call up the skills of people who felt like this wasn't the place for them, be it because of some of the attitudinal issues we've touched on in our conversation around anti-intellectualism. I hear it from politicians too. Oh, I was hopeless at maths. But look at me yeah. now. You know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a real narrative there. Yeah, I do think we need to choose our words a lot more carefully and think through some of the impacts of what we say. But, you know, there are things, for example we kicked off the discussion paper last week on the diversity in STEM review because we want in particular underrepresented groups to be called up a lot more in that effort. Uh, We need to work out ways to engage and tap into the imagination of younger people and be able to find why the initial interest wanes and people move off into different 
fields and what's holding us back there. So there's a whole body of thinking that needs to be undertaken in that and we're starting that that process. I want to see we've got a plethora of, you know, women in STEM programs in our in our array of programs that are available and I'm trying to work out which ones uh, function the best, which ones don't, and scale up the ones that seem to be delivering and make sure that we do have more women, First Nations people, people from different ethnic backgrounds involved, people with disabilities, making sure we've got uh, from, you know, in terms of a whole range of different corners of the community that people feel like they've got a role to play. And we've, it, it does need to have a much wider range of activities applied to make that that occur. Yeah, it does. And even if we do get young people to study science and technology related degrees, I've been speaking over the years with talented young scientists who are jumping ship. They're they're either leaving the sciences altogether or they're leaving Australia for countries Mm. like America where they see Mm. their careers being fostered. And the sobering reality is for young scientists is that increasingly in Australia they are hitting very significant career dead ends. So they face insecure short-term research contracts, Mm short-term funding cycles, crazy competition for the existing grants. Mm. And so we're kneecapping scientists before they even get a chance to fully realise their professional potential or at their career stage where often Nobel laureates are made. Minister, kids aren't stupid. I mean, they'll they'll read the news, they'll see that science-related degrees aren't for them, there aren't secure career prospects, so they bail. Mm. Do you feel that urgency for young scientists today who just are caving in and leaving? At the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is exactly why, and I'm very grateful you've raised these points, why I keep saying about valuing know-how and valuing ideas, uh, because I think there is an element of that, uh, not not just from an individual's perspective, they need to feel that within an organisation as well, that those skills that they bring to the table are highly prized and valued and sought after. So even if they are so, valued, the, the money is not there to sustain their careers in Australia. Some people will start in a pure science, like applying their skills and, and their talents in a pure scientific play, yes, and then they might make a career shift like you indicated in your question, but still use that thinking and improve and uplift uh, the quality of work being done in an organisation through what they're doing. But to your point, absolutely, there is an issue around people feeling the insecurity of how long a grant lasts for, how much they're able to get, the competition from other countries for what they do. And I think that is a genuine threat that we do need to take on board, that that competition is there and that we will lose skills. And I uh, have spent time and I have talked up about converting the brain drain that we've experienced into a brain regain, getting Australians back. How do we do it? Government. Because we've, well, we've had this conversation over decades now in Australia hmm. and we have not reversed the brain drain. You're absolutely right. And I, I, some of the things that we're doing, Natasha, is trying to signal. And I've been talking with people overseas and here about applying some of what they're doing in the national interest, be it, for example, if you've seen particularly something I'm, I'm feeling very strongly about is we've got leading skills in quantum technologies that we want to be able to have those people applying uh, that on Australian so- soil rather than being lured overseas. So 
you know, making sure that we've got the policy frameworks right to attract and hold people and the funding right to make sure that that's a reality is really important. And having all those things lined up, Natasha, coming to your question is really, really uh, crucial. And we certainly feel it as a government and we're trying to send that signal in the early days of this government about what we do. I know your chief scientist is is working on a, a quantum policy. National last, quantum strategy, yep. Uh, uh, last month you launched what you're calling a national conversation starter for developing Australia's science and research priorities, mm-hmm. a national science statement. The last time we had uh, priorities in science was 2015 under mm-hmm. Malcolm Turnbull's government, uh, a national science statement, 2017. Uh, one might ask, nearly 10 months into your government, why are we just starting the conversation about science and research priorities now? Uh, that whole process, I'd flag that we wanted to do this very early on, getting the frameworks right to get that done and for it to be substantive work, really important. Uh, but I have to say, in our first year, kicking this off, recognising, one, this is an issue, that we can't have science priorities that haven't been updated given everything we've lived through, notably the pandemic, and what we're seeing on the world stage at the moment, the way things are playing out, we do need uh, to update those and apply them in a way and send a signal about what the country's valuing and involving science and research communities to help shape those priorities and the wider community too, because we want to have a wider sense of why this is important to the country's well-being longer term. We've been kicking those off and I think We've been applying that energy and starting that process. Sometimes people will say, we want you to to have started that yesterday, and I get that. I I share that impatience, but we are moving on it. A final question to you. You've nominated elevating and investing in First Nations knowledge as Mm -hmm. one of your refreshed national science priorities. Mm -hmm. What does that actually look like for you? What, What does it mean to embed First Nations science and knowledge systems into what you do? I think we do need to confront that for generations there was an active downplaying of the value of First Nations knowledge. And there were corners of the uh, conventional scientific or orthodox or orthodox views about what was rated as valuable knowledge versus what wasn't. And part of that process was to Uh, not recognise the value of First Nations knowledge as part of the broader dispossession, the efforts at dispossession and disconnecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from from the lands in which they'd grown up and thrived for much longer before European settlement in this country. So I think there is uh, something to be said about that. And seeing, for example, and I cited this in the National Press Club speech I gave last year, Natasha, where I I started by reflecting on the way in which First Nations knowledge uh, was using things like spin effects to create new materials that could be used for a range of applications, not the least of which in construction. Uh, And I've met with people from those communities that are showing how the way in which you manipulate Uh, combine both First Nations knowledge, manipulate that material, create other products and processes, uh, can actually uh, add value, not just in a commercial sense, but also in a wider community sense. And I think there's a lot that can be learnt from what First Nations knowledge has been built up over the years. Uh, And you can also take into account, and there's been some great work, for example, by Crystal Dinapoli and Carly Noon on astronomy and and learning, levering off what First Nations people, they've done some work that was recognised in the Victorian Literary Prizes recently, uh, their work on 
on Sky Country, a great book I'd commend to your readers. Book. It is a great yeah. book. Do you see Which this I as read being... over the holidays and I think it's really important to do. Do you see this, though, as going beyond a surface engagement with Indigenous scientific knowledge? Because often there's, well, there's talk about uh, fire farming, fire stick farming, but it doesn't progress more deeply. There isn't a deep listening relationship between Indigenous scientists and non-First Nations scientists. I'm hoping that our government and the actions of our government, let me put it to you this way. You don't need to rely on my words, watch our actions. You've referenced the fact that I've wanted to highlight this in the national science priorities, but there'll be other things, uh, other decisions that we make in due course that will reflect uh, what we want to do here. And I'm more than happy to come back at a later point to reflect on uh, how we've progressed in that regard. Well, perhaps we could get you on with Indigenous science leaders. I would be. I would love to do that, and and would. I think your point and your question is very well made around listening. We need to do more listening rather than imposing views, if I can put it that way. Minister, thank you so much for joining us on ABC Radio National. My very great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. The Federal Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick, our guest this week. If you think the national priorities for science and technology need a rethink, you have got until the 31st of March to make your views known. And if you feel strongly about the diversity of people in science in this country, who gets to actually do the stuff? Initial submissions to the Pathway to Diversity in STEM Review are due by the 11th of April. We're going to put all that on the Science Friction website so you know where to go. Next week, designer babies have been on the agenda at the big third international summit on human genome editing in London this week. Now, in 2018, at the same summit, a Chinese scientist made the shocking announcement that he'd created the world's first ever gene-edited babies. Now, he's out of jail. Insider accounts next on the show. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is produced by myself and Erica Vols. Find and follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app or any pod app. I'll catch you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.